This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. On Talking TV this week, important updates to commissioning processes at the BBC and Channel 5. Plus, ITV ropes in Bear Grylls for a new I'm a Celebrity style entertainment format. Later in the show, we'll find out what happened when Channel 5 sent 20 people back in time to live a Stone Age existence. And finally, we preview a brace of BBC Two documentaries. The channel takes us inside the commons and on a journey with a cook abroad. All of that on your latest edition of Talking TV. Joining me at Maple Street Studios are Outline Productions Managing Director Laura Mansfield and Broadcast Features Editor Robin Parker. What's been keeping you busy, Laura? It's it's the new year and we've kind of got off to a kind of racing start. Um, yeah, lots of big projects in development and two big things that I can't talk about in production. Oh, which are very No, I can't yet. <laughs> very, very exciting and slightly nail-biting. So yeah, it's been an exciting month. Good and and Robin, we've uh, we've been awards crazy, haven't we? We have. We've been we've been celebrating twenty years of broadcast awards this week, and then we celebrate this year's broadcast awards next week. Tell us about the the twentieth supplement. Well, we, we just always a, a chance to um, really sort of dig back and think about the successful shows and the people who made them, and also the rise of the indie community in that time. So we have people like Peter Fincham talking about slightly more Wild West days, and then you have people like Gareth Neem and Mel Leach talking about you know, running their indies today. It's well worth a read because you get a real insight into some of the biggest shows that have ever been on UK television and the way uh, some of the biggest indies are run as well, the mm. culture that they've tried to um, develop at their, their, their various companies. Yeah, it's quite interesting having a mixture of producers, commissioners and writers and creatives there because they all have their own perspective on a show's creation or its reception or ultimately its influence. So, yeah, I strongly recommend you take a look. Fantastic. We'll crack on with the first uh, news story of the week, uh, which is on the front page of your latest edition of Broadcast and is the news that Channel 5 is to rip up its ad hoc commissioning processes in favour of a 12-week cycle. Uh, The plan is the brainchild of Director of Programmes Ben Frow, who hopes it will benefit suppliers by injecting clarity and transparency into Channel 5's commissioning patterns. Laura, do do you think it will do that? I think it will. I think it's a really fantastic idea, a really sort of bold, confident move from Ben, and I think one that the whole indie community will really embrace and celebrate. I think, you know, like Chris said in his leader, anything that improves clarity is what we all crave. We want to know where we are, certainty. And I think people love competition. Competition is never the problem. But you want to know where you are so you can make plans around it. And I think good on Ben for recognising how tough it is to run an indie, for reaching out to smaller indies and for doing this. So I think it'll go very well. Have you experienced this before? I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, commissioning rounds are something that have been in place at various channels over the years. And there are pros and cons to commissioning rounds. But, I, you know, for me, I think this is this is really worth doing. Do you think if it works, Robin, we'll, we'll see more of it at other broadcasters? We could well do. But, uh, but I think it's, it's been particularly an issue for Channel 5, this lack of clarity under various regime changes. Whenever we do our indie survey and we talk about the broadcasters that are easy to deal with, difficult to deal with, and the problems people have. Channel 4 is by no means on top, partly because, you know, other channels like the BBC and Channel 4 probably use more suppliers. But there's there's often a, a criticism of not knowing quite what they want and they're, not, and they're not quite coming back to you. And it does feel like that in Ben, people have an ally. And certainly when he's ever been on the public stage discussing things at Edinburgh or wherever recently, it certainly feels that way. And then he's respond very positively to him. He's very sort of straight-talking. 
and excited as well about ideas. And I think his quote about small indies was very telling there that he, you know, he really does want to reach out to them and make it straightforward for them because he knows it's their lifeline. It feels like quite a settled place over there at the moment. And he, he's sort of steadied the ship. They're having some success on screen. Celebrity Big Brother is doing brilliantly. Everyone is chatting about it, aren't they? Do you recognise that, uh, that that uh, Channel Five in a in a confident place, Laura? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're confident in terms of what they're putting on screen. They're confident in the way that they're sort of commissioning off screen, and they're sending out very clear messages about what they want. And so, with this, that only builds on it. I mean, we're making our first Channel Five show at the moment for years and years, and in part inspired. Is this the one you can't tell us about? <laughs> this is one of the ones I can't tell you about. It hasn't been announced yet. Um, but, you know, in part inspired by that clarity and thinking, yeah, we really want to work there. We really want to make a success of it. And I think, you know, they've moved on from their previous owners in a really confident way, which is inspiring. A lot of that is the, the Viacom corporate structure and their their way of doing things. I don't I don't know how much of it's Viacom. And, I you know, I think a lot of it is really sort of led by Ben because obviously he was there, you know, previously and he's being very clear and very ambitious in what he wants to achieve there. And I think that people respond to that ambition and want to help him achieve. And obviously the fact that Celebrity Big Brother's doing so well, you know, there are audiences, they are going to five, and he can afford to sort of experiment and play with things. I mean, the fact they've got 10,000 BC starting next week, I mean, that's, again, really exciting. People can bring big, scary projects to five, which they might not have done two years ago. Okay, and away from Channel 5, the BBC has introduced five new rules, which in essence means that commissioners will be banned from leaving with any idea they develop while at the corporation. Why, I hear you ask? Well, let's recap. It all follows BBC One commissioning Electric Ray to make entertainment format prized apart last year. It was a controversial decision, given Electric Ray's founder, Carl Warner, developed the idea within house and a number of indies during his time as a commissioner at the BBC. Uh, let's focus on the new rules, shall we? Laura, they seem extremely clear, don't they? They seem really clear. And again, you know, clarity is what everyone craves. I think I, like many people, am surprised that they weren't in place before. And I think if anyone's ever entered into an employment contract with anyone senior who creates or develops IP, there's always a massive set of restrictive covenants in a contract that govern how the IP can be taken forward. And I'm sort of amazed that there weren't those kinds of covenants in BBC contracts. But yeah, I really celebrate them. And it seems like a very good, clear set of guidelines that make total sense. Maybe they're just emphasising it, given what happened last year. I don't know. I mean, Mark Lindsay was clear that these are new guidelines, though. Yeah, I mean, we can't really comment as to what was in people's contracts before, but these seem like good guidelines, and yeah. To be fair to the BBC, Robin, it feels like they've been quick to react. They have been quick to react. and Clearly, the story we exposed about Prize Depart last year must have accelerated some of this a bit, you'd think. Whether they would have been quite so public and clear about this if that hadn't happened we we don't know but um as i say if the spirit of them was was in place already and one or two cases kind of rocked the boat a bit it makes sense just to get on with it and spread it out for indies because we're only going to sort of talk about it and worry about it otherwise and just quickly uh you know a major factual shake-up going on at the moment uh with the roles held by senior commissioners akil ahmed sam bickley martin davidson and clive edwards being closed to uh, to save money this is this is quite radical isn't it the bbc yeah, I mean, it is quite radical and it's, you know, and it's always anxious making, obviously, for the people concerned and for everyone else when there are big sort of shake-ups of roles and divisions of roles. But ultimately, you know, you look at the sort of plain facts, the BBC has got to save a lot of money, it's got to keep saving money, it's got to keep making cuts 
And ultimately, you know, the, the two really expensive, well, the three really expensive things are people, buildings and programmes. And they're not going to cut back on programmes. So they've got to be cutting back on people and buildings, unfortunately. It does seem very broad roles. I mean, the, the specialist factual one is, is tough because to think about Akhil Ahmed, for example, his speciality is, is very much religion and religious, religious history and ethics and that, that side of things. Is someone in his position able to sort of take that broader brief if they haven't been a commissioner in that kind of field? And if you are a commissioner in that kind of field, what is your next step up if the next step up is a big, broad-ranging role rather than a, a, speci- a much more specialist head? Wow. So it'll be interesting to see the next role for each of these obviously talented and successful people in the BBC and whether there's any outsiders who come in to take those roles. Well, Broadcast will bring you more news on that uh, as it happens. Finally this week, our Commission of the Fortnight. ITV's bid to plug the Champions League gap with male-skewing content uh, took a step forward this week in the shape of Bear Grylls' Mission Survive. The snake-chomping former commando will lead a team of celebrities into the depths of a Central American rainforest for a 12-day survival mission. Over the course of the six-part Betty series, a star will be eliminated each episode until just one is crowned Mission Survivor. Robin, can you stomach more Bear Grylls? He definitely is flavour of the month, and let's not forget how just how well the island did for Channel 4, and that's coming back too. It's not the only format that, that ITV is giving him. I mean, I question... Yeah, he's also doing Newtopia's Britain's Biggest Adventure. Yes, yeah, so, you know, they've hired him for this specific uh, uh, skill set, specific genre. I do question whether that, plus I'm a celebrity, plus another Bear Grylls show is going to be overkill on the kind of a, the, the survivalist kind of thing. But it is a twist on those kind of formats. And I suppose if you have an expert in that field there rather than a light entertainment presenter hosting it, the stakes are higher and they can push you a bit harder and it's a bit more sort of immersive. So on its own terms, it could work, but it does feel a bit like... To me, to me, I don't know, it feels a bit lazy to me. It's like, oh, we need some male-friendly formats. Let's bring in Bear Grylls, men men like him, right? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, Bear Grylls obviously resonates with the audience. Um, Wild Weekends... You know, was it was a fantastic show. I mean, I think this will really work. I think people will really come to it. I suppose my my question around not necessarily this, but if you look at all of the different Bear Grylls formats across the board, you've got Bear Grylls on ITV, you've got Bear Grylls on Channel Four, we've also got Bear Grylls on Discovery Channel. Now, in this modern universe, does that mean that each channel can differentiate it, mm. itself enough? I suppose that would be my question. I think this sounds like a great show and I would definitely watch it and it sounds like great fun. But I think longer term, different channels having the same presenter, I think is quite tricky. OK, we'll leave it there. That's the news for this episode. Thanks to Robin and Laura. Up next, that most well-trodden of TV tropes, uh, the social experiment. Telly has had a love affair with testing human endurance and personality that stretches back to Big Brother and beyond. Now, as part of a first joint commission under Viacom ownership, Channel 5 and MTV are preparing to launch the latest contribution to the genre in the shape of 10,000 BC. Produced by The Garden and Group M Entertainment, its premise is simple. Send 20 modern men and women back in time to live a Stone Age existence. Stripped of all their contemporary comforts, the group will be forced to hunt, forage and bond to survive. In a moment, 10,000 BC executive producer Spencer Kelly will tell us more about the show. But first, here's a sample of the first series. I think the Stone Age people were mad. Cannot be anything other than a 21st century human being. How do we get from there to here? 
the level of cold is absolutely insane. It's inevitable people are going to get ill. I'm at, like, breaking point. I ain't going to quit. 10,000 BC starts this February on Channel 5. Take us right back to the beginning then. Where did it all come from? Well, it all came from a meeting we had at Channel 5 with Ben Frow and Simon Rakes. And uh, Simon Rakes is the uh, history commissioner. And we were just talking about the social experiment type of programmes and sort of, um, is there a way of doing one again that is stripped of all the sort of, I suppose, often the tropes we associate with sort of these type of genres where there are prizes or there's voting off. Can we do something that's much more organic? And within a sort of history framework. And I think we very quickly, uh, well, Simon and Ben were very keen to sort of explore the idea of a Stone Age. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started, very simply from that idea. Uh, and in many ways, the premise sounds quite simple. You know, you go, right, let's cast 20 people and we chuck them somewhere and we see how they survive. And um, in some ways, that is it. But around that is quite a complex sort of process of trying to find where you go, how do you film it, how do you make it feel uh, genuine, the experience, and, and how do we sort of see a narrative art develop without really being able to produce it in a way that perhaps other shows are in that genre. Okay, so tell us about some of those things, because you you shot in Bulgaria, didn't you? Yeah, so we went to Bulgaria. How did you find your location? uh, We found a location through some local fixers and uh, the help of a couple of production companies out there. Um, What that meant was a sort of a tour uh, around the whole of Bulgaria in about sort of five days, where we spent probably about sort of nine hours in a van. It was a bit like some sort of um, middle-aged in-betweeners. It was like three of us, me and uh, the series Quite producer. Quite the road trip. And, yeah, and the production <laughs> uh, executive. And uh, we saw lots of different locations. And, I, and I, I suppose the reason we went to Bulgaria was because there are large areas of sort of wilderness that sort of mirror what might have been arguably prehistoric Britain. You know, there's uh, huge sort of tracts of land which is forested. There are wolves, there are bears, there's jackals, and you do not see another building or anything modern in sight. So it's very sort of good for that for that reason. And we saw, uh, I think about, I don't know, probably eight different locations, um, and many of them were ex-communist uh, hunting reserves. Uh, so we settled on one place that we thought actually had the sort of right criteria for being able to sustain a group of people. And alongside us, we had a survival expert, um, Adam, from a company uh, called Tafs TV, who advises on lots of these type of programmes, who's brilliant, you know, kind of quite an amazing individual. Uh, and so he could quickly scope out the land and think, actually, this is sustainable. There is enough stuff here to get a group of people going and, uh, you know, act out the sort of social experiment. You talk about, you know, making sure people are safe and um, they've got the right tools and environment to, to actually survive in. What's going on around the people and and the, and, uh, and the people in the in the show? What are you doing to make sure those things are happening? Yeah, I mean it's quite tricky, isn't it? Because I suppose you want to give them a sort of genuine experience, but of course we operate as a modern uh, production company and we have to ac- apply all the health and safety protocols uh, we should do to make sure that people are safe. So on a simple basis, once we got them in there, which was uh, you know the sort of I suppose the tricky bit, transitioning them from the modern age to the Stone Age, and I guess there there was a little bit more direction in sort of getting them dressed in the sort of uh, animal skins uh, and entering into the camp, which our uh, on-screen expert uh, Clint Janalis did. Once they were there, very simply, we just filmed what happened. Uh, And to do that, we had um, uh, uh, four crews, um, actually six crews, that's a a lie, we had six crews, and they operated on a shift basis, so at any one time there would have been four cameras filming them. 
uh, we ex- we stayed in a uh, the, the hunting lodge was about 40 minutes away and that was our sort of main operating hub and then there was uh, a sort of forward operating base if you like where the safety team were there to observe them their roles to observe them but if anything went wrong they could sort of step in and then we basically turned up and filmed and we filmed all the time that they were uh, there all the time they were awake and at night we had a crew on standby and of course there were times where they were just Sleep. Actually, luckily, they went to bed quite early, which is quite, quite a good thing for us. But they <laughs> and were this all remained early. in place for for two months for the entire for two duration. months, the entire entire duration. It was quite challenging. The uh, environment um, was very wild and very remote, and the access to the camp was this sort of really quite um, uh, you know sort of treacherous sort of track that uh, very quickly um, got worse due to sort of the weather. And we had the most extreme weather. I mean, in October, uh, about the sort of twenty sixth of October. We had sort of nearly about sort of a, a meter of snow that just suddenly just dumped on us, um, and so it was a, a very challenging environment to operate in. And and very tiring. of course, the the crews have to sort of uh, comply. There's lots of protocols, and we also had a protocol for a protocol, but they weren't allowed to eat or drink in front of the cars because clearly they're having to survive on what they've got, whether it's their rations or foraging, and they've got a limited amount of rations to be given at the beginning to get them going. I mean, it is genuinely tough. You can see that in the first episode that comes across. Mm. Um, How did you go about finding the right people who could, A, survive in this sort of environment, and B, provide some good entertainment for us at home? You could have gone down the route of choosing uh, a cast that were arguably quite well-versed in survival skills. Um, it would have been a very different show, and we didn't really want to do that. We wanted to do something that felt like it reflected sort of modern Britain, arguably. We are products of, of you know, 12,000 years of evolution since the period we're looking at. Within that, there are certain sort of, I suppose, archetypes that sort of are born out of the society we, we exist in, and actually what happens to them if we strip away some of those things that we're so used to. So we wanted to cast quite diversely, uh, not just diversely as sort of a representation, but also diversely in terms of what people do and their relationship with with the world. So casting-wise, we uh, targeted certain groups, went out and did street casting. Uh, there was a couple of shout-outs on, on, on Channel 5. Uh, we explained to them exactly how tough it was going to be. I think probably when they got there, <laughs> they probably didn't realise quite how tough. I mean, I think at the beginning there's a little bit of a sort of, ooh, excitement, and they probably got more than they imagined they might have had given they've got some uh, some some structures, uh, one's in pretty good shape, the others need some work. They've got some tools, they've got some basic rations, and they probably thought, great, you know, we're not just sort of scrambling around in the mud already looking for worms, although obviously one of them does straight away. Um, one of them eats a worm straight away. <laughs> yeah, so it's extraordinary, that, isn't it? She sort of totally gets into it. I guess we wanted a, a range of people that we knew would at times sort of have quite a long way to go in understanding and coping and adapting to this world, and also some that would be able to be useful to the group with different skills. And, of course... You don't always want people who've got skills that are sort of relevant to hunting and foraging. You need some people who've got soft skills as well, people that are used to sort of being in a group or people that are caring or people that can transfer knowledge. Tell us about the tone of the show because some might say for Channel 5 it's quite restrained and stripped back and you know, genuinely informative as well. I think there's two things. One, that they wanted something that was genuine and that wasn't tricksy, uh, wasn't uh, overly produced. I think the tone... Uh, in the program, it's quite BBC Two in a way. Yes, it's paired back a lot, yeah. and I think that was a, bit, a big steer from Simon uh, and from Ben, which we were very happy with because I think quite often a lot of the things we we will make at the garden, we sort of try to sort of make the material tell you the story or the people tell you the story. So the interatrons is a uh, interviews, you know, the straight down the lens sort of mirror box. 
interviews are very much something we use in 24 hours in A&E. It allows them to, to sort of inform the viewer and give their experience and also makes them really feel like they're informing the, the experiment. The tricky thing about that, actually, it's all fine doing those when people are sort of um, fed and sort of rested and fine. And when you're trying to sort of do them amongst all this stuff going on, uh, it can be quite challenging. But, uh, but you know, really important to do that. So we set about filming it in a, in a very obdocky way. I mean, nothing, um, nothing surprising, good old school sort of documentary making skills, really. And that was something that they, they wanted. And tell us about Clint. Oh, so Clint was great. I mean, we were very lucky, actually. Uh, Clint responded to, uh, I think, one of, we were doing some research somewhere. Has he, has he been on UK telly before? I haven't seen no. him. He's very good. I yeah, thought. he's very good. No, he's very good. He's remarkable, actually. Uh, he's so, a survival expert, just just to be clear. I, I didn't make that clear, sorry. Yeah, he's got a, a CV that sort of makes you sort of wither. You know, he's sort of ex-US Special Forces, you know, sort of uh, archaeology PhD graduate at, you know, Oxford University. I mean, he's sort of a, a, a superman. And he came to us through research, actually. We were checking the, you know, how, what, what we had in Stonehenge and what we should do and what sort of things we need to look at. And, you know, would this be authentic or um, what would they have had? And he came to us and was just very, very keen. He loves this stuff. You know, he does this for a laugh at a weekend. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> this is um, an idea of enjoyment. Yes, absolutely. And so he sort of was a very easy, he was a very easy fit and very quickly uh, jumped into the role, brilliant at um, galvanising a, a group of people who suddenly arrived in Bulgaria, even though you've told them exactly what they are and they fully know it, suddenly the reality sort of hits and it's like, my gosh, what's going to happen next? And they totally, I mean, believe in him because he is the real deal. You could see him doing other things beyond this if, 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 if this works. Yeah, he's got a real talent uh, and he's very natural uh, and very unfazed uh, about it, uh, which, is, which is great. You know, I mean, he really does muck in. Fantastic. And just, just finally, I mean, obviously this is a co-commission between Channel 5 and MTV. Mm. How will it work on MTV? Well, I haven't been involved in that so much at all. Uh, David Wise has been overseeing that. Um, but quite simply, uh, the idea is that they take two films... Uh, and they merge them into one, um, and I think the um, as a result, you know, the, the pace is quicker. You're, you're sort of getting through material so faster, much, cut, much, mm. much faster mm. cut, and I think they focus on, on on some of the cast that's sort of relevant to that sort of demographic. So, probably so do you have interviews with some of the younger members of, uh, yes, of the cast? Yeah, I mean, everybody who is involved, all the cast are filmed and interviewed. There's lots of lots of material. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that um, you know, filming round the clock, you, you do generate a lot of lot of material, which is great and also challenging as well sort of you know uh, choosing the, the right bits and picking through the narratives but um those shows are are very good uh, i haven't i haven't been involved in them but so you, they're, they're, you're treating them almost as distinct shows one absolutely of them is being yeah elsewhere is that, uh, no that it's, we're all edited in the same place yeah. uh, so we're all sort of joined up and, and yes of course we all we all talk but um we don't we don't sort of get involved editorially with each other we sort of go well we what we do is we go right here's that cut of that program here's that cut of program and they go off and has that been interesting? I, I can't think of uh, many other examples of. Uh, where, no, where that I mean it, it does have it does have challenges, of course, because depending on our progress and where we're getting with the cut, they're you know waiting, going where's our bit? Come on! You know? <laughs> uh, so you know it's sort of uh, it, it, present, it presents uh, challenges, but uh, actually it's been surprisingly easy, which is great and it's very exciting actually to think, you know, ten shows and then you know five more in a slightly different format. Uh, it's very exciting actually to see how that all plays out. Thank you for coming in and all the best with the series. Uh, 10,000 BC begins next Monday at 10pm on Channel 5.
Okay, Laura and uh, Robin are back with me. We just uh, we just heard Spencer. What, what, do we, what do we make of this? 10,000 BC, do we think it's going to work for Channel 5? I don't know if it's going to work for the channel, but you know it's going to get a fantastic lead-in from Big Brother that plays before it. And... I mean, I can't wait for it. I will absolutely tune in. I think it's, you know, real appointment to view telly. It's really different for the channel. And I suppose the question will be is to what degree will that sort of big brother audience and all that kind of bonkers trashiness that's been going on in the house translate to what sounds like a really remarkable, very, very ambitious social experiment. But I don't know. I just think it's hugely exciting that Channel 5 is commissioning stuff like that. Pretty big marketing campaign and the, the obviously the, the co-commission with MTV makes it more interesting as well, Robin, doesn't it? Yes, and I think also it's you know it's a different twist on those kind of living history things that the, the BBC and in the past Channel 4 has done so well. And I think, you know, given a, given a sort of a Channel 5 entertainment push behind it, that's, that should be quite a, a nice mixture because it is, you know, a bit educational, um, but also it's another survivalist show in, those, in the kind of reality genre that works, works so well. And it will be interesting to see how that plays across the two channels and whether that now sets uh, a template or a, a benchmark for other productions to reach. Well, at least it hasn't got Bell Grylls in it. And it hasn't got <laughs> Bell Grylls in it. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to some previews. Our first pick of the week is BBC Two's A Cook Abroad, the series where celeb chefs travel to different countries to track down the origins of their favourite grub. Uh, made by BBC Bristol, the journey begins with hairy biker Dave Myers in Egypt. Here's the man himself going in search of the perfect falafel with local cook Mustafa. I must admit, I have problems with falafel. OK. I've tried making it with the fava beans, you know, with the dried broad beans. I've tried with chickpeas. My falafel fall to bits. Problem is, if you boil the, the beans, actually make it fall apart. You don't, but that's where we go. I've been boiling my beans. No, no. you uh, just soak them for in, in warm water for a uh, uh, couple hours in w- warm water. If you use cold water, you use you, you soak it overnight. Yeah. So it'll give you that nice um, creamy and nice texture like you will taste in here. That's delicious. No. Laura. Outline has a good uh, good reputation in cookery. What, what, what did you make of this? I really enjoyed it. I mean, we've made shows with the Hairy Bikers before and I think they're great fun and people really respond to them. And so it was a real departure seeing Dave Myers on his own, actually, because Cy was, wasn't well and they set that up at the beginning of the episode. But what I really enjoyed about it was, in a way, because he was on his own, he had to get stuck in there. And so he was really meeting real people in their homes, eating very, very authentic food. There was very little sort of back in the kitchen and it was really out and about and exploring a kind of food that we haven't seen very much on telly. We don't get to go to that part of Egypt and they went to, you know, right down to the south of Egypt. So I really enjoyed it and I sort of felt that there was a an authenticity and an intimacy that you don't necessarily always get in those sort of hairy bikers shows. So yeah, it was it was a thumbs up for me. I was a little bit sniffy about it. But it took me with it. I, I, I enjoyed yeah, it. I mean, it. You know, in some ways, you know, it, it's a very straightforward format for BBC Two. It's kind of you expect them to do take a celebrity in their in their field and take them out on a travelogue. But I think this one, this one, and I haven't seen the rest of the series, but this one bounced along with his sort of puppy dog charm. Really, he's just sort of so enthusiastic, totally at ease with everyone. It's hard not to like him, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, and, and totally at ease and positive with everyone he meets, and they and they respond to that too. So there's none of that kind of awkward culture clash thing you might get where it's a, you know, a little bit uncomfortable. This was just a man getting stuck in learning about the food he likes. And then I took lots of facts away about um, Egyptian food. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, it's not really him doing that much cooking. It's him observing and taking the things he's going to take home afterwards. But I think that's fine. And as you say, it's it's not a 
cuisine we see very often. Over the rest of the series, there may be some more familiar things, but I think they're right to have a a mix of presenters in different parts of the world, so I think it could work quite nicely. You're not going to get any recipes to make at home from this particularly, are you? Um, I would imagine that they will follow it up, and I would imagine that on the website, and I would hope that they are going to follow it up with some recipes on the website, because watching it and looking at the food... A lot of it looked absolutely delicious. I mean, those falafel look gorgeous. They looked amazing. And um, but later on, some of the stews and some of the dressings, you know, looked really nice. But I mean, you know, it was it was an enjoyable watch. Mm. You know, not deep and meaningful, but you know, very enjoyable. I quite like, he just sort of embraces all sorts of food. It was quite I quite liked the way he referred to things like uh, pitters and falafels as our food back home because it is part of our dish. It's not it's not just a Greek dish or a, or anything from that part of Europe. It's it's an everyday food for us, and I think it's quite nice that he just included that, made that very inclusive as well. Well, I didn't even know, I didn't know how much importance Egyptians place on bread. Bread, I know, incredible. And that bread did look fantastic. That guy who was talking about his wife had to be good at baking bread for for, yeah. for them to remain together. <laughs> it was, that was quite interesting, I thought. Was it five loaves a day, the average family? Well, I think the interesting thing was also about the, how, the fact that the government subsidises bread there and there's been riots over bread when the sort of subsidy was taken away and getting those little tiny nuggets of sort of political insight, you know, was, was good. You can take our freedom, but you can't take our bread, <laughs> that kind of thing. OK, well, we'll have to move on. A Cook Abroad hits the road on the 2nd of February at 9pm on BBC Two. Our next preview is a recurring theme on Talking TV. Yes, it's another access documentary. Uh, on this occasion, BBC Two is taking us on a walk through the corridors of power in Inside the Commons. Atlantic Productions was granted unprecedented access inside the Houses of Parliament, with journalist Michael Cockrell opening up the beating heart of UK democracy. In this clip, it's budget day, and MPs are scrambling to reserve a seat inside the chamber. There we go. It's official. I have my space. And as long as I turn up to prayers, it's mine. There's one backbench MP who doesn't need to worry about his prayer card. Sir Peter Tapsell, the longest-serving member who's known as the father of the house. By custom, Sir Peter has his own special seat, but still insists on putting in a prayer card. The reason I put it in is uh, because I don't want the embarrassment of turning somebody out of their seat who may not know the convention in a crowded house, particularly if it was a lady, it'd be quite a difficult thing to do. And the problem would arise, did I sit on her knee or, or did she sit on mine? Robin, I found this genuinely revelatory. Amazing scenes. Even just seeing the, the sniffer dogs going around before everyone comes in and, and sort of the politics of where you sit and all that kind of stuff. And also, I think, when they are debating, just seeing that from different angles, sort of being in there with them, was you're so used to the the, the, the straightforward uh, face-on shots in the normal TV coverage of, of debates. But to actually feel like you're among them, I thought, was quite, quite a privilege, really. And it made great use of this iconic building. We sort of saw, you know, so much inside and outside of it. And it also, I think, touched on sort of some class issues as well, very, very smartly about, um, you know, perhaps some sort of divide between people who've gone through top-level private school in Oxbridge and then and then sort of carried on in these in these hallowed corridors, and some some other people who are sort of entering it for the first time. Laura, are you with us? I thought it was truly extraordinary. I mean, for me, this is what the BBC is for. It was just wonderful. You know, it sort of was the ultimate access doc. The access they had was amazing, but also not just the access, the storytelling and the fact that they cut between seemingly trivial little moments that were so insightful about these kind of bonkers traditions of Parliament about putting the the prayer cards in. 
or the way that they have to process between to, between the houses to bring the papers through, but then also cutting to moments where they're restoring the outside of the House of Commons and getting an insight into these... There's some incredible characters there, you know, whether it's the father of the house or whether it's this truly remarkable chap with the best eyebrows I've ever seen um, <laughs> called Robert Rogers. Um the programme should be compulsory viewing for everybody and I think gave an insight into our democracy and to voting and why it matters. It was just wonderful and I was totally gripped from start to finish. I thought it was clever the way they followed some some people, some, some MPs who were, who were new to the House and yeah, you saw it through their point. eyes. That was a clever little trick. Yeah, that it? was a, yeah. a great entry point and as I yeah. say, that, that does sort of open up the issues of you know entering this kind of rarefied world. And I think also... Just the little touches, like the the scene where the, where we're shown the tea room with the separate areas yes. for everyone, and one MP who <laughs> obviously went to the wrong to the wrong table first time round, and all this sort of stuff. Because they all sit in their parties, don't they? Yeah, at the tables. And was it Nicholas Soames who said he he sort of found a part of the uh, the commons he'd never found before just by wandering down the corridor, and it turned out to be a bar. So that was quite a nice revelation <laughs> for him as well. So just those little, those little touches it really just opens it up, and it intrigues the next few parts. And I hope you know that the novelty just of seeing inside doesn't wear off. I'm sure it won't, given how strong this first episode was. It felt like they had, they, it was well-timed as well, because obviously they were, they were doing the repairs to Big Ben, uh, and there was Robert Rogers who, was, uh, who, reti- who announced his retirement, didn't he? Uh, so the, you expect, perhaps, over the next couple of episodes, you, you'll see this issue with them trying to grapple with modernising the processes and the way things work. And I think that that theme, that sort of old and new theme, that this is really ancient and the traditions and in a way the sort of slightly ridiculous kind of paper mountain that they create and some of these kind of really mad traditions about the way that they vote through the lobbies, which I've never really understood and now I do, clashing with, you know, the modern needs of a fast-moving government were really brought out. So, I mean, I think that that one will run and run, but they had just, it was packed. It was lovely little insightful moments that they didn't dwell on too much that allowed you as the viewer to form your own opinion. And I think that's what I loved is it wasn't condescending. It was beautifully told. So there was this little moment where David Cameron described the House of Commons as, well, it's a little bit like a combination of a church, a museum and school. Well, only if you went to Eton, David Cameron. (laughs) But it was just wonderful. But no one dwelled on it. No one picked that up. And I I think it's truly marvellous. Did you see him clock the camera at the end? So after the Labour MP had asked a question during Prime Minister's question time, he was walking, he was exiting the chamber, wasn't he? And she was giving a piece to camera, doing an interview, and he clocks the camera and then comes over and says, oh, brilliant, brilliant question. He's not silly, that man. (laughs) Inside the Commons opens its doors on the 3rd of February at 9pm on BBC Two. And as the Speaker of the House might say, order, order, because it's time for us to fall silent. Uh, Thank you to my guests, Laura Mansfield and Spencer Kelly. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week for a Broadcast Awards special, which you won't want to miss. Until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 